Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. In this episode, I chat with Erica Stanford, author of the book Crypto Wars, Fake Deaths, Missing Billions, and Industry Disruption, due to come out in July. The book is about the complicated history of crypto scams, hacks, and pump and dump schemes. In the next 45 minutes, you'll hear about the stories behind OneCoin, BitConnect, Quadriga, and Mt. Gox. Each story is filled with unique drama, but they share one commonality. They were projects and companies optimizing on negligence, taking advantage of retail opportunism, or doing a mixture of both. You'll learn about common reoccurring themes in crypto scams and why similar Ponzi schemes are still being promoted today. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to pick up the book at a local bookstore or on Amazon to get the behind the scenes details. It's really juicy stuff. Erica is also the founder of Crypto Curry Club, one of the most popular crypto networking and events organizations in the UK. If you're tuning in from London, make sure to check out the Crypto Curry events once they're back on. As always, guys, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Erica, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Leslie. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Really nice to meet the author behind the book Crypto Wars. I'm sure you've been very busy as of late. Crypto Wars is what we'll be talking about today. How do you feel being a published author, Erica? It's now for pre-order. It's out in, in July, so in about a month's time. And it, it's just been slightly surreal, the whole thing, sort of from writing it in, in lockdown and now suddenly it's on Amazon. It's quite exciting. I bet you're going to be glued to the screen once it actually launches, right? And and hopefully you've been getting some pre-orders coming through. But, you know, it's no small feat writing a book, especially one about crypto. The space is so small right now. I feel like lots of people will have opinions on all the events that mm. you write about in the book, right? Which covers scams and hacks and all sorts of pump and dump schemes. But, you know, that's what I really want to dive into today, right? This really complex world of crypto that doesn't get covered a whole ton. So I'm curious, how did you come up with the name Crypto Wars and perhaps give our audience a high level a summary of the book? The name, the Crypto Wars, was actually the publisher's idea. They approached me with with the idea of it. So they'd done another couple in the series, Cyber Wars and, and Corporate Wars, I think they're called. And, and so approached me with the idea, I was like, okay, this this is fun. And previously done a bit of looking into the, the, the crypto scam side. So then they were like, would you want to do this? So I, I went back and came back with a sort of a proposal of what we could talk about. So all of the subheaders and, and, and all of that and all of the ideas was mine. And I mean, I, I think with the scams and when you start sort of looking into that, they're so surreal and the, there's so much that, that you, you would sort of think it's fiction except it's not so actually coming up with sort of some fun names and stuff for the subtitles was was easier than I thought just because they're so <laughs> outlandish and so incredible. Yeah, for me, it took maybe about two days to read the book, but only because I had okay. to do other things in between. Otherwise, I could have taken it down in less than a day because it it did really felt like fiction. Like, how is this even possible? That <laughs> scam was going on for yeah. years, right? We're not even talking about months. 
And for a space that moves so quickly, the fact that there are some scams, and, and we'll cover some of these today, that went on for, I think, almost two years time. And the fact that, you know, the authorities still can't catch uh, some of these scammers is very mind boggling. Yeah. And, and that, that is what is incredible about them, that they got so big and some of them really got so big. And I think, I mean, especially you know, as, as we saw with, with the OneCoin scam, and that's, that was sort of the, the first one. I mean, that they, they initially thought it had taken up to about 15 billion and they now think it's, it's up to about 25 billion that, that was lost to that. But there's still, if you look on, on LinkedIn today, I mean, this, this is years after it got denounced as being a scam years after law enforcement and the FBI started arresting the people and and there's now people in prison for life it's still an ongoing criminal case they're still looking for more people and so it's been several years since it's been shut down as being a scam and since law law enforcement have actively been involved and saying it as such and there's still over 100 people on LinkedIn actively promoting this and there's still people promoting and still people selling it to this day and it's it's it started with the one coin, but there's now so many of these scams, it's almost common where you've got this multi-level marketing mixed with crypto packages. And, and that's how they got so big, so many of them, because with, with multi-level marketing, they offer these incentive reward structures. So if, if, if I sell you something, I get a really big kickback commission. And then if you sell something to someone else, I also benefit from that. And then if they sell something onwards down several levels. So there's these huge incentive structures in place for people that that sell these packages and then sort of kick that with with the crypto thing where there, there's all these you know amazing too good to be true promises that if you, if you just send us your money we um will give you crypto coins that will just double or triple or quadruple and then they'll go up in value so you'll have x amount more money or we've got this trading bot and so if you just send us your your money or you send us your bitcoin We'll, we'll trade this money for you and we'll send you double back within 24 hours. Or we'll, we'll give you one or 2% return every day. Or we've got this mining equipment. So if you just send us your Bitcoin, we'll buy mining equipment <laughs> and then we'll mine more Bitcoin for you. And then you'll get guaranteed profits of whatever X amount per day. And, and you know, the, they were all Ponzi schemes and, and the mining equipment didn't exist or the trading bot didn't exist or, you know, the cryptocurrency in, in one case didn't even exist. But people just bought in and because then it, it wasn't just the scams promoting the, the project, it was people reaching out to communities. So you had friends and families and religious leaders and community leaders promoting these these scams and, and getting getting payments for, for doing so and sometimes not even knowing that that what they were bringing their followers into was a scam. So yeah, they, they've gotten really, really big. I'm sure a lot of these MLMs and multi-level marketing leaders, if you want to call them that, formed communities, right? And together communities form cults some of the time. So yeah. have you found from your research that many of the most successful scams start off as cults? I, I don't I don't know if it's it's to say that they start off as cults, but cult like is definitely the 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 best way to describe them. And, and I think it's it's a combination that they, you know, sometimes they probably didn't realize how big they were going to get, but then they grow and grow. And when people become invested, um, then they 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 become they sort of really buy into the project. And then of course it's it's hard to then leave a project once you've invested so much and once you've brought friends and family and so forth into it. And 
it, certainly when you look at the sort of the I say best in inverted commas the most successful scams ones that have grown the biggest and, and have affected the most people they're, they're getting more and more sophisticated and they now not only have the the money and the resources to hire the best people in in marketing in persuasive sales and sort of copywriting and in, in, in mlm and multi-level marketing but the sort of the the promoters themselves the mlm guys themselves go from scam to scam to scam or from project to project to project so they get better they get more experienced at knowing how to um how, how to part people from their money and they've they've got these huge downlines already built that some of them have just carried from scam to scam to scam so yeah they really are mm -hmm. cult-like and because the people behind them are, are just getting so much more experienced because they're not getting stopped that they just go from one scam to the next that that it, it it's it really is incredible hard for people to sort of see beyond that and, and to leave yeah, what are some other common reoccurring themes that you see in crypto scams? A lot of the people that I speak to feel like they have a good handle on the due diligence process, you know, but I think what DeFi Summer has taught us is that mm -hmm. even with the sophistication that we've seen around infrastructure, around uh, project teams, around audits, right? every project is still prone to hacks, right? Uh, right. And, and no investor is exempt from a possible, what the industry calls rug pull. Um, so right. regardless if we're in the 2017 era with you know all these ICOs or we're in 2021 with a much more robust and sophisticated crypto ecosystem across mm. DeFi and CeFi, what are still some common themes that remain that you know make you think okay this is a crypto scam i i mean it has it has really evolved since that sort of the main ico era from the sort of 2016 2018 period when yes you had some that were real organized crime and that, that were some sophisticated scams but i think the majority were more opportunistic people that that maybe didn't know what they were doing. And these are these projects that didn't really know what they were doing, that they just got excited by the hype of the moment and, uh, and launched these projects. And you know, this was at a time when it was really easy to basically copy, copy some code and pay a freelancer to create a, a little website and create a logo and give it a coin. And then you know, you've got your own cryptocurrency. And I think they didn't really possibly know what they were doing and, and know about regulation or, or didn't perhaps bother to to check about the consequences. So I think in that area, while, while in that era, whilst there were some sort of real organized scams, it was a lot of, in some cases, just hopelessness and, and opportunism. Whereas now the, the sophistication of, of scams has really, it increased a lot. So you've got the MLM scams and multi-level marketing scams, which have gotten really pervasive. But then also now it's, it's, it's really easy for the scammers to just copy websites or copy email addresses, or e either impersonate celebrities or influencers' social media, or even hack into their social media channels. So we've seen a lot of that, where you've got celebrities or influencers either promoting scams, or or tweeting about them, or saying buy this, buy that, or oh, we're feeling generous because of of the coronavirus lockdown. So if you just send us your Bitcoin, we'll send you back double, and so forth, and. You know, in, in some cases, it's it's celebrities that have been talked into promoting these these scams or, or paid to promote them and 
maybe not doing the due diligence necessary and not doing the checks necessary. But in other cases, it really isn't the celebrities or the influencers promoting those scams. It's either their accounts have been hacked or they're being impersonated in some way. And and the the sort of the techniques now to impersonate these these celebrities are getting so good. It, it can be really hard to, to know which is real and, and who is a scam. So that that is one trend. And I, I guess the advice is if, if anyone, a celebrity or any influencer, tells you to go and invest in a certain project, uh, don't is probably the best uh, advice. And, you know, of course, just do your own research, but that it, it can be very hard to know if it is if it is real or not. Um, and then the, the other tricks are just, um, yeah, getting getting influencers on board has, has been a, a real big problem. And, and we've seen a Facebook and even Twitter to to a little degree uh, cracking down on that a bit. But now it's just people moving over to TikTok and you've got people just promoting scams to, to their followers um, there. And, you know, often they've got huge amounts of followers and they say, go buy this project, go buy that project. And, you know, sometimes it, followers don't even see that just because these influencers have got enough Follows themselves that they're able to manipulate the sort of the market caps of some of these projects single-handedly. I mean, we saw this to a degree with with John McAfee and during the ICO era, where, where a number of YouTubers did that. But people would can still just by having enough followers promote projects and and get really good money for um for 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 bringing people on board. And they don't really announce themselves that they've been paid by that project or that they're getting money from every time somebody invests. So they're the, the bringing in celebrities and influencers, either with their knowledge or not, ha- has become a huge problem. I totally agree. I think uh, with a mainstream adoption of crypto comes these risks, right? Everyone wants more right. eyeballs on the space. You know, that definitely is a good thing that more people know about crypto, but that only means that people are going to just take advantage, right? Be more opportunistic, as you say, about the uneducated crowd, right? Which will be a large part of the incoming crowd of crypto enthusiasts, right? Crypto investors. And that's who scams target. That they, they, they don't target the sort of the crypto investors. They target, you know, everyone else, really. One thing I wanted to talk about is the complicated nature of anonymous teams. You talk about this one project called PlexCoin, and I'm going to quote something that you wrote in the book. You say, just as incredible and incredibly nonsensical were PlexCoin's reasons for not showing the details of anyone working on the project, end quote. And one of the reasons PlexCoin gave for remaining anonymous was, you know, for the project's security, right? For the safety of the people around them. They said, quote, how do you want us to be able to guarantee you a total confidentiality if we reveal our identity. Any organization could then contact us, visit us, and scrutinize our operations and yours, right? Back then, I would say, yeah, an anonymous team would have raised a ton of red flags for me and would make me think, right, this project is 100% a scam. But, But on the one hand, right, you say, okay, Bitcoin was founded by a pseudonymous person or group of people. And Bitcoin today is largely not considered a scam, right? And on the other hand, we've seen the rise of anonymous teams building in DeFi. So it's it's so crazy to me because like on the one hand, we look at PlexCoin's reasons and we go, 
that's totally not reassuring, 100% a scam, um, and makes me second guess their intention as a project. But on the other hand, now we're seeing anonymous teams behind growing projects in DeFi. So do you think anonymity is a problem for projects building in crypto today? I, I think it definitely has been. I mean, the, the reasons Plexicon gave were, were just utterly crazy. I mean, there, there was no sense to that that at all. It was it was just a really sort of pathetic excuse. And uh, you know, I think you're. I mean, you're right with with Bitcoin and people have used that um, that that reasoning often. And I think that the difference is with with say Bitcoin, for example, and and even some of the the anonymous projects today. I mean, there's some of the anonymous projects that I've spoken to through various sort of reasons and. and Yes, that they, they, they want to be anonymous for, for various reasons, maybe because they're working on another project, maybe because of their safety, maybe because they feel that that's better for the project for whatever they're doing, mm. but they still have people who know what they are. So if they're going to get investment, for example, or if they're, they're um, you know, talking to certain people, there are still people who they make clear that these people know who we are and will vouch for them. So just for example, I spend a bit of time with without live ventures, just looking at some of the, the, the projects that they take on and on board for their next um, sort of accelerator and, and programs. And we spoke to one of the anonymous teams there. And you know, he had various reasons for wanting to be anonymous and you know, gave a number of people where he said these people who are all clearly in the public eye were clearly could be vouched for, know me personally and will vouch for me. And I mean, I think that the difference is, is with with crypto, because you can see things like the code publicly, you can make things available on GitHub, for example, where you can show this is exactly what we're working on. Here is what, what work we're doing. Here is what changes we've made. Here is here is what we're doing on, on a sort of a tech point of view. So the, I guess the difference is if a project now wants to be anonymous, they can still show exactly what they're working on what what changes are happening what what updates are happening they can still for example get community votes and so forth to do certain changes or to do certain upgrades and you can see exactly what the code is and what they're working on if they want to make that public which which a lot do whereas with scams like flexcoin that they, they weren't making anything public there was nothing to show exactly what they were doing because they, they, you know there wasn't anything behind it. So I, I, I think the difference is with that. And, and it's the same with say the Bitcoin blockchain, the technology is there. If you want to see who's got what in what wallet, you can see that it's, it's transparent. I mean, that, that's a benefit of, of blockchain technology as opposed to some of the scams where there, there's literally nothing there. In some cases they don't have blockchain, they, they don't have a cryptocurrency or they don't have the trading bot that they say they do mm. so that there's literally nothing there and and then they're sometimes even using fake people's profiles or you know there was one of the ICOs who used them um, famously it was the actor Ryan Gosling's photo to say that, that he's the head of graphic design or whatever it was um you know where I mean maybe they just didn't realize how famous he was gonna ruin it for um me. <laughs> but whether there's <laughs> Um, where, where there's clearly nothing behind it. So I think, I think the difference is where, where there are anonymous teams now that, that are trying to be clear, they really do go out of their way to make sure that there are sort of well-known, well-respected people that will vouch for them and, and they make their work transparent. Yeah, I guess the argument in DeFi is that 
you can really say now there's no need to trust a team per se because you can verify their work, right? That famous phrase, don't trust, verify. Um, you can do diligence, smart contracts. And I guess like another advantage as well is as DeFi projects with supposedly centralized teams looking to progressively decentralize, actually being anonymous could play a very big part in accelerating that process. Because as some people will say, remaining anonymous uh, makes it such that you don't need to rely on a person's reputation or a team's reputation, right? You can actually focus on the product being built, right? Or the community or the ecosystem that's being built. It's not tied to one specific founder that's, you know, going on a million interviews and talking, you know, his or her head off, right? So there's a larger focus on community in in that sort of journey to decentralization. So that's, I guess, another narrative that way back in 2016, 2017 uh, was, was not nearly formed uh, to the level that we see today. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is a reminder that, that you, you really can't trust people and you don't want to trust people. I mean, if you look at just some of the, the exchanges, that's where they're, they're using people in some cases. And there are crypto exchanges that, that do go out of their way to, to be more secure and to, to have safe custody as much as possible. And there are others that have really relied on either having nice, smiley, persuasive people who persuade people to send them their money or, or, or using offers or so forth to, to get people to put their money into having exchange. And there's so many people believe that, oh, if we just, we'll trust this person or we'll just trust this exchange, we'll send them our crypto. And that's easier than storing it ourselves or, or maybe they don't know the alternatives. And, and, and then, you know, that happened with, with Cordovica, people trusted the guy behind it and then he, you know, it's, it's, it's now been proven to be a scammer fraud from the start. And you know, may, maybe maybe the, the guy is dead, maybe he's just disappeared. No one knows. Most people in the crypto community, community certainly don't seem to think he's dead from, from what I've spoken to, but either way, the founder disappeared. And, and there's $250 million of, of people's funds lost. And, and you know, it's easy to say, well, that was just a one-off, but that happened only a couple of weeks ago again with, with an exchange just persuading people send your money, send your money, we'll store your crypto safely. Uh, and then the founder disappeared. Uh, and because again, it relied on one person mm. having the access to, well, it was $2.2 billion, it's an awful lot of money, uh, as opposed to if, if you've got a project where the focus isn't just on one leader, but on here, you can see transparently, this is how we store crypto, or this is how we do this, or this is how we do that. Yeah, tell us about the custody risk that users had with Quadriga. Because there, I mean, there's a whole drama that went down with that particular exchange, right? right. And I think you use the words old fashioned fraud wrapped in modern day technology. And apparently this custody yeah. risk. Well, that, that wasn't my words. I think that was, that was the, the, the words given by law enforcement to describe ah, this. Okay. It seemed like from the very beginning, there was mismanagement around custody. And for a centralized exchange, that is one of the main risks, right? The fact that a lot of assets are are held in hot wallets, given the sort of nature of trading activity, the need for constant withdrawals and deposits for transfers, so on and so forth. So custody risk is always something that 
a new exchange or an existing exchange will continually talk about simply because that's the number one questions a lot of users have, right? Apart from, you know, is there liquidity on your exchange? So tell us about the custody risk that users had with Quadriga. I mean, I guess that the reality with, with custody is now is there are solutions to store crypto securely. There's, there's Copper, there's Trustology, there's a few such companies that, that really enable secure crypto custody. There's even insurance now for, for crypto assets. So I, I think it's, it's worth saying that crypto isn't inherently unsafe. There are ways to, to make it very secure if, if, if that's what the exchange's intent is. I think the difference with, with Quadriga and what was found out only afterwards after that the founder died or disappeared um, and, and law enforcement started looking into it, the, the founders had a criminal history from the, the start and had been involved in various sort of Ponzi schemes and various money laundering scams and so forth before they even got into to running a crypto exchange. And what was different with Quadriga is instead of having users crypto stored securely where everyone's crypto was either stored securely offline for example or, or had any efforts of, of maintaining crypto custody what what they did and and similar to the the, the turkish exchange where the founder disappeared recently mm. it, instead of going to any effort to to make that crypto stored securely and it wasn't that the founder didn't know how to they, they instead got everyone's crypto into effectively one centralized pool where the, the founder could it, it sort of help himself too. So I, ideally with crypto, the, the, sort of the a benefit of, of crypto is that if somebody holds crypto and you have the private keys to it, then so for example, if you hold crypto and you hold the private keys, I can't then go and meddle with your crypto and, and sort of trade it and, and, and steal it from you. Ide ideally, and that, that technology is there and it's possible. But instead of, of doing that, he got everyone's crypto. And, and I think they, they lied to people that they said it would be stored securely. But instead of that, everybody that deposited money on Quadriga went into sort of one big centralized pool, which the founder then used to trade for himself or, or it seems used to siphon off money from. So it wasn't that people had access to their own individualized crypto or, or what they held there. The founder and the exchange said, that they were going to store crypto in, in one means and just didn't do it. And, you know, this, this was at a time before some of the technologies are there where you can really see exactly what's what's happening. And, you know, there was a large amount of trust in the founder and in the exchange. So people probably didn't think to to check that. And of course, it sort of it, it played out well initially, but it just goes to show how, how important it really is to to actually check and and there are now sort of third third party you know analytics firms and and companies that really do check into the security of exchanges and and do exchange ratings and rankings so users have more idea now about the security offered by various exchanges and than they probably did in in 2014 mm -hmm. when it was still a much newer space absolutely another project that you write about is called BitConnect. And we all know about it because of the famous yeah. meme with a <laughs> guy named Carlos, I think. What was the great pyramid scheme behind BitConnect? What was it and what surprised you most when you're sort of diving into the weeds and learning about how that project collapsed? So, I mean, Bit BitConnect is a fascinating one because initially when they launched their ICO, there was really not much information about it. And I think initially they only raised about $410,000, which, 
which yes, it's, it's a lot of money by any definition of the word, but this was still one of the earliest ICOs and, and before the sort of the ICOs came in where they were raising millions or tens or hundreds of millions of, of pounds. So that they raised a, a relatively small amount of money for, for an ICO, but with no information really whatsoever that they had no information on the team or, or, or what they were doing. They just said they had this trading board and, and that if you, if, if you would lend them your, your, your money, lend them your crypto, they, they would trade this money for you. And, and then you'd get X amount of returns back, you know, high, high percentage returns, you know, over, over 1% a day back guaranteed. And, and I think what, what happened, partly the token price got pushed up just out of, out of hype, out of greed, out of, you know, they had a very big marketing budget clearly to, to promote the project and to push the token price up. But then also like with any sort of good Ponsai scheme, initially they paid out. So for the early people that, that got into BitConnect and, and sent them their money, lent them their money, that they, they got their, their interest payments back. So you had a lot of people that were making literally livings off of BitConnect that, that were lending them their money. Then because it had gone up in value so much, they had these huge amounts of, of money sort of locked up in, in BitConnect that they were getting these daily interest payments from. So you had a lot of people, early people who, yes, maybe didn't do enough due diligence into the project, but there wasn't really much information into it. But for the early people that got into it, they were really getting money back and getting a lot of money back. Mm-hmm. And, and BitConnect, you know, put on these big parties and pay people to go to Thailand for these shows and all of that. So, you know, early on, it, it sort of worked. So then people started talking about it and you, you had YouTubers really, really sort of persuasive, powerful YouTubers promoting the project. And again, it was a multi-level marketing thing. So anybody they brought in, they got, you know, a lot of money for, so they were persuaded to do so. So it got really, really big. And then it was only sort of when it stopped, you know, when the Ponzi scheme reached its peak of, of not enough new people going in, that, that it collapsed. And it was just amazing how many people sort of really trusted it. And, and just sent their money, sent their money. But the, the problem with, with BitConnect, because so many people were making money from it, that they, they were sharing that with their communities, with their followings. And, and you know, the, the early people really did make so much money from it that, again, it, it got really big. It got really, it, it turned into a huge problem. You know, billions and billions of dollars got lost to it. But then it collapsed so suddenly. And I think what was remarkable with, with BitConnect it really did collapse very, very suddenly. It went from like $470 to, you know, it lost about 99% of its value almost overnight. So for some people that was their entire life savings that they lost, but then they launched another ICO ask, and, yeah. and they weren't sort of content with just taking one set of people money. They, they, they launched, the, you know, the BitConnect X and, and you want, wanted to, try, you know, to get people again and persuade people, well, you know, sorry, basically, sorry, the token price has crashed. And we're sorry, lost you, you lost your money. But if you send us your remaining money and you send us your, your remaining BitConnect, then we'll convert it into this new ICO, which will get rich. And then people sent more money or, or you know, were desperate to sort of recoup what they'd lost. And then they changed the, the ICO price from, from $5 to $50 for a BitConnect X token just, just you know, overnight. And people still believed it. And I remember even at the time, seeing people posting on social media about it and 
you know, commenting. And I, I remember replying to one on Facebook or something. It's like, yeah, it, it, it's a scam and, and get, getting my head bitten off for, for promoting that because people still didn't want to see that. People still wanted to send their money and, and then it crashed. So, you know, it's it, tragic because so many people lost, you know, life, life savings. But this is BitConnect was, you know, I, I would say organized crime. It was a really sophisticated group mm. who knew what they were doing, who knew how multi-level marketing worked, who knew how these pyramid structures worked and and set up you know a really big scheme um behind it so i think that that was one of sort of the first big crypto scams that was a really big problem for the industry because it had just such a, a degree of, of sort of cleverness behind it sort of really good organization behind it which is how it got so big and and so persuasive let's go to one of the most infamous crypto scams that started before bitconnect called OneCoin. In your words, how did this project that clearly posed so many red flags spread so fast and grow to become so out of control, right? Tell us about the story of OneCoin and why the BBC has dedicated a whole series called The Missing Crypto Queen to talk about this story. I mean, first of all, The Missing Crypto Queen series is just the most incredible sort of podcast an incredible piece of investigative journalism so if, if anyone hasn't heard the the missing crypto queen series just go and listen to it now it's 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 incredible how, how well they've researched it and sort of explained what happened in in the one coin scam and do you know it, it it is it it is an amazing scam to sort of to to look at and and so many have now copied that structure and, and one coin was the first one where where Rusha, the the founder who has has been disappeared and and been sort of hunted down by the FBI for the last few years and who I can only imagine has been killed um, by now, but it, her her whereabouts are still unknown. She um she had this idea and she she was clearly a very clever woman who had this idea of of mixing multi level marketing with crypto for the first time and I think that's why the one coin scam got so big. So she she partnered with a, a guy, Sebastian, who really understood the multi-level marketing and how to make that big and, and partnered multi-level marketing with these crypto packages, where if you just buy these packages of, of crypto coins, they're, they're going to you know, go up X amount in, in value. And they made these crazy promises. And, you know, as, as with all of these scams, if you sort of look at a compound interest rate calculator and, you know, that they're, they're available on Google and, and you... You, you put in the numbers, the, the returns over over a few years are, are simply not possible. There's nothing sustainable about the numbers that they promised, but people didn't necessarily see that. They saw their good returns. And and the problem that, that happened with, with OneCoin and the likes of, of those scams, other people in crypto really were making those returns. So people that hadn't got into crypto early enough wanted to make the same returns. So they really sort of believed the claims or, or bought into the, the the hopes or bought into the greed perhaps so can can those people really be blamed for believing that when when other people really were making those those returns it's you know you you can really sympathize with the people who fell for the scams but they they just brought this this huge multi-level marketing structure in when they they got the the best people in multi-level marketing real um, you know, real multi-level marketing experts who were making, you know, 
millions and millions and millions, tens of millions, just from promoting one coin. And then they had these packages where it was basically, it was just get rich quick. If you just send us a little bit of money, we'll, we'll, we'll make you X amount more money because these crypto coins will double and then they'll go up in value and so forth. And, and it was just that mixture of, of multi-level marketing with the, the get rich quick sort of crypto promises that made it so, so bad. And one coin, but we've seen it with, with several of the scams since the problem was because of the incentive structure and the multi-level marketing thing, they, they got people to, to spread it to their communities. And this, the, the, how it got so bad, it was religious leaders all around the world. It was community leaders, it was people. It wasn't the one coin team spreading the scam. It was people who themselves had bought into it. And, and in some cases, yes, they knew it was a scam. They didn't care, they just wanted the returns. But other people that were promoting it had fallen for it themselves and didn't know that it was a scam. And you know, this was before it was seen to be a scam that they'd bought into it and they saw that the numbers on the screen were going up. They thought they were getting good returns. So they, they shared it with their friends, with their families, with their followers, because they meant well, because they thought, well, I'm getting more money from this, right. therefore you will too. So it spread so badly all, all around the world, uh, around literally all around the world because it was people who'd bought into it who were sharing it and then community leaders so I think that that was the problem was people that didn't necessarily know how to research but people were buying it from people that they trusted and and who they knew and and then of course how awful for those people who have led their friends and families into the scam and and they only found that out afterwards one of the craziest things that I learned while reading about one coin was that it was never actually on the blockchain, right? Didn't their blockchain developer come out and say, yep, look, it was never on it from the beginning. It was just the founder, Ruja, changing up numbers on a spreadsheet. I mean, that was it. Yeah, I I spoke to the guy who who was contacted by a recruitment agency for it. And he's had, you know, he's had death threats. He's had huge problems for for mounting it. But but exactly that, It it was just Ruja changing the numbers. And, and meddling with it. And, you know, that, that only came out later and that they made all these great claims. And again, it was it was sort of going back to your anonymity question. You know, when people asked about the blockchain, that they came back with answers such as, well, we can't share that information. We can't say what blockchain it's using because that's far too dangerous because this is our secret. This is, we have to keep it secure. We have to keep it safe. And, you know, anybody that's in the blockchain space knows that that's, not not the case that that's sort of the opposite of of what is true but you know that they, they came out with all of these lines about why they couldn't share the information about their blockchain for for the same reasons as as your anonymity questions yeah i mean one coin though isn't even the craziest i guess we'll save the biggest one for last year, which is called Mount Gox. It's probably the <laughs> most fresh in people's minds, especially for those who have been in at least since around, you know, 2017, 2018. Mount Gox is so crazy because it didn't start off as a scam, I don't think. There wasn't an intention to scam people, perhaps like OneCoin was. And I'll, I'll quote you again here. You said, the more that was going wrong internally at the exchange and the more Bitcoin it lost, the more successful the exchange was at attracting new users and storing more Bitcoin under its roof. Mt. Gox had gone 
from controlling over 80% of all crypto transactions to declaring bankruptcy, its wallet empty. And you basically helped to reveal that Mt. Gox had been insolvent since 2012. How in the world was that the case, right? It had been running all the way till what, 2014, Mm -hmm. early 2014. Yeah. Yeah. What what happened? Well, so I don't think Mt. Gox is a scam. Um, I, I, I don't think that that at all. You know, I actually feel sorry for the, the guy who ran it, Mark Capellas. I think he was in totally over his head. And, uh, and you know, yes, there were mistakes happened and they, they could have had more security measures in place. But I, I think it was more a question of a, a guy who was just totally in over his head, who hadn't had experience of, of running a crypto exchange before. And it grew really quickly and partly due to the exchange but mostly just because crypto was growing so much at the time bitcoin was growing so much at the time over that period and for anyone that's been around in in sort of early days of crypto i mean even now user experience in crypto isn't good it's it's notoriously bad it's it's difficult it's horrible it takes time it's the, the, the user experience in crypto, yes, is is getting better. And and yes, one day will be I, I 100% as easy as sending a photo on WhatsApp to somebody else. That is happening and that is changing. But the, the user experience in the early days of, of crypto, of, of buying crypto, of sending it, of, of storing it, of, of using these these crypto exchanges to be able to buy into Bitcoin was was really difficult. And, and they just simply weren't many options and, and not many easy options. And you had to go through this sort of whole international sort of banking system to be able to go from having money in a bank account to owning Bitcoin. So uh, I, I think partly Mt. Gox just grew because it just happened to be, you know, right place, right, right time. Uh, and as, as, as they got in there early enough. So I think it grew perhaps more than they intended and, and faster than they intended. And I mean, yes, there should have been security measures and checks, of course, that's, that's easy to say, but they, they had a whole series of, of hacks where they were hacked and they had crypto stolen. And and in some cases didn't even notice because as, as money was being leaked out, one of the hacks sort of, instead of taking all of the Bitcoin in one go, because that would have been A, obvious and B, because of the, the lack of liquidity at the time, had they just taken all of the Bitcoin, that they wouldn't have been able to sell that that Bitcoin, it would have just crashed the market. So the hackers sort of siphoned off slowly the, the, the Bitcoin so that the Mt. Gox was sort of bleeding dry. And yet, yes, they could have and perhaps should have checked that. But because they had so many more people getting into Bitcoin at the time and, and depositing money, the, the sort of the funds kept topping up so that they didn't notice that what was topping up was just being bled, bled slowly out. So, I mean, yes, I think more checks could have taken place. I think that's a safe, fair comment to make. But I, I don't think the the intention of, of Mt. Gox was ever a scam. I think it was more just a series of sort of mis, misfortunate happenings and, and hacks and, you know, a, a degree of inexperience. But I, I think, you know, Mt. Gox has had a lot of uh, criticism and, you know, a, a lot of that is fair. But also it, it was very, very early, relatively in, in the crypto ecosystem before a lot of the, the security measures and sort of the safe custody solutions and, and you know, insurance and things that, that we have available now. 
before that they before they existed before there were these options so you you know i think yes that there were a lot of problems with the mount gox exchange but almost it was sort of a learning tool for the industry in a in a in a way yeah i i feel like several founders will tell you it was the launch pad for an idea right around uh custody around uh security uh infrastructure right it, it, they they took mount gox as the most recent most prominent case to be you know what yes i i agree with you it's it's not a scam but it is an example of gross mismanagement and here are all the ways that we can make the industry actually thrive and improve uh, by fixing all of these very apparent problems that this exchange kind of revealed, right? Because they got hacked, what, like six times, you yeah. know, during the course a of A lot of existence. times, they got, they got hacked a lot of times in a row. Yeah, and somehow yeah. it's just like a cockroach, um, like it kept, so, <laughs> it kept running, right? Seemingly yeah. okay. And and what what's hard, I mean, you, you see now, I mean, I've got a lot of friends who had had crypto early on in, in Mt. Gox and, you know, what at the time was not a lot of money now is a lot of money and you know what what is frustrating for them because of the the, the japanese legal system they haven't and because of various sort of ongoing legal battles with the mount gox they haven't yet got the money back and and you know even though bitcoin has gone up so much in value people could have got their fiat money back out by now or the you know, the equivalent back out by now but there's still ongoing legal battles which is it's frustrating for, for people that held Bitcoin. But, you know, it's yes, we've seen that with Mt. Gox, but there's been so many people who also held their own Bitcoin on, you know, on on sort of on computers, on hard drives, on on sort of USB sort of hard wallets and, and, and lost the crypto that they had because they threw the computer away or the computer stopped working or because they wrote the, the private keys down on paper and lost those or because you know at the time bitcoin wasn't worth very much so they didn't really pay much attention when the computer broke and 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 now it's worth a lot more and you know what they thought was you know worth nothing is now worth millions and millions and millions so there's so many cases of people now who, who sort of did their own mismanagement of crypto and that was the space early on there's so many stories of people who who lost the the, the money that they had early on in the space for so many different reasons and highly frustrating, I can imagine, for those people. But it, it goes to show how different the space is now and, and how fast security features and custody features and say storage features are evolving in crypto. And I think that's why it's such an exciting space, certainly for me to be in, because you see innovation happening literally every day and it's, it's just happening so fast. Absolutely. So let's look into the future. What's next on the horizon for you. I'm sure you're probably taking some time away from writing right now, but are there any <laughs> other crypto topics uh, you want to cover, right? As in depth as you did for the book, maybe it's not necessarily a book, but maybe a video series or I don't know, a podcast down the line for you. Um, you know, what crypto topics do you think aren't really represented all that well by media right now that someone like yourself would want to do some more investigative journalism uh, to, to cover? <laughs> I've already been asked to do Crypto Wars 2 by a whole load of people, so <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, I think to answer your question about media, 90 something percent of the focus is on the price of Bitcoin and what 
you know, Elon Musk doing this tweet, which affects the price of Bitcoin or affects the price of altcoins or what are the, the prices doing is on the trading side. And, and that's all that people talk about. And that's, to me, missing the point of, of sort of 95% of all of the stuff that's happening underneath that, where you've got digital currency could be used to replace the remittance industry, could be used for micropayments, could be used for paying per use. And I guess what, what I would like to see and, you know, what I hope will happen and, and what for me is sort of interesting in the space is, is do I care if, if Bitcoin or whatever coins go up or down? Personally, no. But if you look at, you know, a third of the world's population don't have access to banking and, and are paying an average of 7% just to send money from A to B and using these remittance companies who are, you know, utterly barbaric companies. I mean, there's no lighter way of, of saying that they, they literally go out of their way to screw the poorest people in the world over because those people have no other choice and they know that they rely entirely on them so they can charge whatever they like. And yes, of course, there's a cost for doing that, but they certainly make make profits from from charging those really, really high fees to the poorest people. And what crypto offers is the chance that you could just send money you know, for a fraction of that cost from A to B and, and, and real micro amounts. So I think what for me is exciting is the potential for these micropayments, for for microloans, for, for remittances, for paying for uh, per use for content, for example, that, that crypto allows that isn't really possible sustainable with, with fiat currency. So I I guess what, what would be nice for me to see is more focus on that, like on the use cases than just on the trading prices. Um, and on a practical level until uh, until lockdown, we used to host so many super fun events with you know getting the, the, the UK's community together getting the founders of, of most of the crypto companies together over over food and drinks at the Crypto Curry Club. And uh, that's been closed since last March because of the, the lockdown. So hopefully, hopefully, hopefully lockdown will end in about a month's time. We're still waiting on confirmation from that. But hopefully later this year, we'll be able to start actually getting people together again. Erica, thanks so much for hopping on Crypto Unstacked, going through some of the projects, right, and and teams that you covered uh, in the book, Crypto Wars. And that was really just a short list. There are so many other interesting stories that you guys can read. So guys, when the book drops in July, go support Erica and get a copy of the book on Amazon. Erica, can they get it anywhere else? Yeah, it, it, it should be with all independent retailers as well. So you can get it via the, the publisher's website. It's cocompage.com. And there's a a 20% discount from that code, uh, I think it's Crypto Wars 20, um, we'll, we'll get a discount on that. All independent bookstores, um, bookstores should have it as well. So please, please, please go support independent bookstores um, over Amazon, just as a personal preference. Um, they, they need the, the support more than Bezos does, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, it, it's available from Amazon and all independent bookstores as well. And it, it's available for pre-order. Thank you so much for having me on. Hopefully we'll see you at a curry soon. <laughs> Definitely. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.